As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best and economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Jonathan Pingle joins us now, Chief U.S. Economist at UBS, with a really concise note on all of this. Jonathan, do you look at this as gospel, or do you believe it will be amended in a second and third look? Well, I, so gospel's a little strong. Um, you know, these numbers do revise. Um, I think the key takeaway, though, is, you know, I mean, Chair Powell tried to downplay this a little bit yesterday in his, you know, post-meeting press conference. But, I mean, I, you know, going back to what Mike said, I mean, and, and we've been pointing out, I mean, for Q2, you know, the guts of the report, you know, just, just look weak. I mean, real personal consumption expenditures rising 1% um, is soft. Um, you know, coming into this year, we all thought the abundant household savings, pent-up demand, tailwinds would be, uh, more of a support, um, and 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 to your point earlier, Tom, with with you know, prices eroding real incomes, um, you know, the consumers just shaped up much more sluggishly than expected, and I, and that I think is sort of the the main takeaway from from the uh, Q2 GDP report. Jonathan, this is stagflation all over. Basically, the idea that we're seeing inflation remaining high and going higher, with that GDP price component coming in at the hottest, going back to 1981. At the same time that you're getting what some would call a technical recession of two straight quarters of negative growth. How much can the Fed really back away from their rate hiking, as the market has been uh, believing, as, as what you're seeing in that two-year yield coming in at a time when inflation is not showing signs of coming down all that quickly? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's very hard for the Fed to walk away. I mean, I you know, yesterday was a really interesting meeting. You know, Chair Powell came out swinging with tough talk against inflation right off the top in his prepared remarks, left the door open for another 75 basis point rate hike. But the broader message that seemed to get sent was that they were transitioning to a slower pace of rate hikes, you know, which which is fair. And this goes back. You know, I caught the clip with Dennis Lockhart. They are moving on to this second stage now that they've brought policy to a kind of more neutral level. But inflation just remains too hot for them to think you're gonna you're, they're gonna stop. I mean, we're expecting a 50 basis point rate hike at the September meeting, and have been for for some time. But uh, you know, there's just there's just too much inflation in the pipeline for them really to relent yet. Jonathan, with the greatest respect for economic historians, does it matter from your perspective whether the MBER calls this a recession or not? Shouldn't market participants just be trading on the data? in front of us. And if it's weaker, it's weaker. And to Lisa's point, pair that with 9% inflation, it's problematic, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, the NBR isn't, isn't gospel either. But, but the NBR does set a threshold for sort of how broad uh, the weakness is. It hasn't shown up in payroll employment yet. Um, and, and also a certain amount of the severity. I mean, right now, 
you know, as much as consumer spending's been weak, I mean, it is positive. I mean, we're just chugging along at, at, at pretty weak growth. Q1 in the report was held down by a lot of the noisy components coming off the very strong Q4. So, yeah, I, I would downplay a little bit the sort of the technical recession signal. But, you know, going back to what Mike said, I mean, the fact of the matter is, and we've been sort of writing about this is the problem with the Q2 report. Yep. The Q2 report's weak for domestic demand. I mean, it's, it's the U.S. stuff uh, that looks weak in Q2, and that doesn't really bode well looking ahead. Jonathan, do you see this spreading to the labor market and how quickly? Because one thing I think we'll hear from the administration later is that the consumers holding up, they'll say things like the labor market is still strong. Do you see it remaining that way through the next quarter? Uh, no, we have we have a pretty meaningful slowdown in, in payroll employment. Uh, we actually would make a case that it has been sort of artificially supported somewhat um, in recent months. You've seen substantially more weakening in initial claims, continuing claims, the household survey data. And given the severity of the slowdown in aggregate demand, we would certainly expect the labor market to follow. You know, we're looking for payrolls to uh, at some point in the third quarter, you know, run under 200K a month as part of that slowing on the way to further slowing uh, in Q4. Do you wish you hadn't adjusted your um, your forecast yesterday, given that it was pretty much on the money <laughs> oh, before the upgrade Go yesterday? Bad form. <laughs> the optics of getting these inventory deflators correct and everything, it, we, we were pretty close in getting the decline. So, and, and, the, and, and, and altogether, the components were, were sort of structured the way we expected. So I, I'm, I'm pretty happy. He's giving you credit because the original <laughs> estimate was basically on the money junk. Anyway, Jonathan, it's good to catch up. Jonathan Fingal there of UBS. Francis Donald with us now, Global Chief Economist, Strategist, Manual Life, very good at the workings of our GDP. What are we not analyzing in today's GDP first look, Francis? What's the big mystery? The big mystery is not today's GDP at all. Today's GDP will tell us what we already know, which is that this economy has materially slowed down. We are not in the roaring 20s. We are not in the reflation trade. And if you told most people that last year, they would not have believed you. The big mystery is what does the next four to six quarters look like? And this is really what concerns me. It's not recession or no recession this year or even in 2023. It's what do we do if we're stuck in 1% growth for four to six quarters. That's much harder to trade, yeah. much harder for central banks to respond to. And Francis, what's so important, I mean, I featured this earlier, and Justin Fox of Bloomberg Opinion has done great work on it. Powell really skirted yesterday the housing plug-in to GDP, which is if we get yields up, mortgages are slammed, house ownership is slammed, and that means rents sustain and go higher. How does that work into the GDP of the nation? Well, economists like to say housing leads the market. You nail housing, you're going to get the economy outlook pretty good. In fact, one of my favorite charts is one that shows that housing leads retail sales. So, you know, really focusing on the housing side of the story is going to be critical. It is going to bring down inflation to a certain respect. Uh, and it's also very, very bad. Every data point we have on housing is trending downwards. Frankly, Tom, every data point we have across the gamut of major primary data points is pointing downwards right now. There's not a lot of places you can look for for optimism unless you do what Powell did yesterday, which is to call initial jobless claims rise not real or to question the validity of the GDP number. Three weeks of it now, and we might have a fourth week of it later. Francis, tell me why the market's been rallying then over the last month, why credit spreads have been tightening, and what do you make of that easing of financial conditions we've seen? 
Oh, bear market rallies. They get bigger the deeper you get into that bear market. I do not believe what we saw yesterday from Chair Powell was a pivot, although it certainly was the path towards the pivot and markets care about second derivatives. But what Chair Powell told us is, well, he's data dependent. Unfortunately, I don't think that inflation number is going to come down fast enough in the next two to three months to take out too much of the pricing for 2022. But what this market is going to do, in my opinion, is price in more cuts for 2023. And gosh, that makes the Fed's job harder, just like we saw yesterday. Uh, the weaker the outlook, the more we see those financial conditions fall, the more it offsets what the Fed's really trying to do, which is tighten. Look at the break-evens yesterday. They're rallying. Well, that shouldn't be happening when the Fed's tightening 75 basis points. They're probably not happy. That's actually funny that you mentioned that, because I was just looking at the five-year, five-year forward break-evens, and they've been steadily rising the more people believe in this Fed pivot. So what do you expect in terms of pushing back against this? How does the Fed react to a market that's not cooperating and getting ahead of itself? Well, I wouldn't be surprised if in the next few days, the next few weeks, we do see Fed officials who come out and really try to walk back some of that, speak to some of the hawkish risks that exist in this market. And that's why I think it's dangerous to make too big of a change in your Fed view after a single meeting. And as we've seen this year and a little bit of last year, you can have these big rallies on Fed Day that are then reverse course the very next day. So Fed Chair Powell told us they wanted to be nimble. I think now is the time for economists and strategists to be nimble as well. Some people who are watching the show, Francis, are probably probably saying, oh, my goodness, here she goes again being bearish. Tom is saying we're sick of talking about recession. Companies adapt. And we are hearing around the margin signs that the rally that we've been seeing is a signal that we've priced in so much bad news that people are beginning to find value. What's your argument against that? Well, I'm not sure if the she is you or me, but bearish has been effectively the right way to do this. And if you look at the economy, it is still trending downwards. Historically, what we would see is that when the economy is about two-thirds of the way through its downturn, you can start to look for opportunities. And I will be the first to say that macro does not rule all. There will be pockets of advantage here. I think we should watch. I think the curve will still flatten, but we will reach a point in the next few months where you want that steepener back on, and there are always bottom-up <coughs> trades to be had. So. The correlation on macro, it does change over time. It's not the be-all, end-all, but the macro does not look good. When it does, I'll be bullish again. Francis, what do our listeners and our viewers do is they jump from forward guidance and the comedy that it was to actually just looking at the data? How do you actually get through a week, get through a month, get through a quarter where you are data-dependent? It's a great question, Tom, because we don't know exactly what data the Fed is looking at. And sure, we asked him and he said, well, we're looking at inflation. We want to see compelling evidence. What's compelling evidence? Probably a few months of month over month improvements in inflation that is heading downward. They're looking at labor supply and demand, but not all data, apparently, because there's plenty of data that says jobless claims and unemployment is moving in the wrong direction. So we don't know the Fed's reaction function as much today as we did even 48 hours ago. And that's going to make a lot more market volatility, a lot more two-sided conversations. Uh, one of my fears is that we're going to have a lot of Fed officials speaking to both sides of the argument. So the clarity on what happens next has been reduced very significantly. And if you're at home and you're thinking, what do I look at? Well, I'm in the same boat. Francis, I can sense the frustration. So let's address it. What do they need to do better? 
I'm not sure it's frustration so much as how much harder are you making the the job of knowing what you're going to do next. And the Fed's job isn't to make my job easier. The Fed's job is to contain inflation and, and really improve the employment outlook. But what would be helpful is if the Fed had more clarity on what elements of inflation they're looking at. Now, two meetings ago, we heard from Chair Powell that he was very focused on headline inflation. But yesterday, he said core is the best leading indicator. So I'd love to hear more about what really are you targeting? Because we know that, for example, inflation expectations for consumers are driven much more by gasoline prices than they are by Fed policy. So which elements of this are you really trying to control? And do you fundamentally believe that it's your job only, only your job to contain inflation? Because inflation came from a lot of places. It's going to play, take a lot of places to fix. I'd love it if we could make our job easier. I'll say it. I've been incredibly frustrated by the last few news conferences. Francis Donald there of Manulife Investment Management. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is important, and what you need to know is you need to hear the conversations while we're on commercial break. John Farrell and Walter Pysak of Light Shed <laughs> on the absolute tensions of the front line of Liverpool. This is Sala and Mane. Walter, Liverpool, their front end, they're not on the same page. I mean, there's some real tension there. Is Apple on the same page or is it a Salamane metaphor? First of all, Tom, for not being on the same page, Liverpool almost pulled off four trophies last year. It was, it was tight at the end, but yeah. that's... And I guess Apple being on the same page with earnings this quarter, probably, but as you know, with the kind of concern over inflation and the economy right uh, a lot of the a lot of the focus is going to be on the outlook for next quarter I, I want you to discuss the pricing power Apple has to manage down the income statement I never hear a discussion of if they go margins are under threat at whatever line on the income statement do they have pricing power I mean they have pricing power for the quality of the products, but I mean, Apple has been known to reduce the price of their product in certain markets. And I think there was some reports even last week that in China, um, there was some reduction in the price of iPhones. They've done this in other markets throughout the world. Why you don't necessarily see it crush their margins is you've had this mix shift over the years in terms of services, which has been a higher margin business for them. So they've been able to 
to generate a very strong margin. Currencies are a hard thing to fight, though, right? This is a this is a global company, so I think you know currencies are certainly something that are gonna they're gonna have an impact also in terms of the guidance. They can't do much about that. Walter, the top tier iPhone though going on sale that seems pretty rare to me. Are you saying that's not a big deal as some people are making it? I think it's a big deal because it's China and China has been such a big part of the growth engine. You've seen it in other emerging markets in the past, which I think it may be more understandable, but China has been able to grow without seeing these types of price cuts. So I think when we're all looking for kind of tea leaves on what's the impact of economic weakness, you can't ignore that as as one of those things to watch. And maybe that's going to be indicative of how they look for growth um, or what their outlook is for growth for next quarter and, and the following quarter. So there are all these knowns, right? We've heard from Qualcomm, we've heard from other chip providers that there has been diminishing demand for uh, smartphones, for a number of other personal computing devices. How much is baked in, in terms of disappointment versus the unknown unknown, right, of an even bigger slowdown than expected? I think a lot of that is baked in. But remember, the iPhone is 50% of the revenue and even a greater percent of the profit of the company. And you have to look at what's going on in, in telco land right now, where they had a surge of growth during the pandemic in terms of number of customers signing up. Uh, and then there was a lull. And if they want to fight each other to grab customers, their willingness to subsidize, I think, could increase or sustain. Like Verizon, as an example, which is struggling to generate any type of subscriber growth, doesn't seem like they're going to give up in trying to give you $800 or $900 to get a new iPhone. And I think that's the data that we're seeing. So I think that's one of the offsets to a weaker customer and their ability to buy a very expensive iPhone is the willingness of wireless operators around the world, but particularly in these markets that are still huge for Apple and these, you know, these high, high paying markets to subsidize that customer to upgrade their phone. Which raises the question of how much the behemoths have an advantage in this environment. How much are you seeing a distinguishing uh, factor of the haves and the have nots within big tech as this earnings season grinds on? I mean, that's a great point in terms of, you know, the, the people in society, they're getting impacted. It's, it's, you know, those that are buying iPhones might have a different impact than, you know, some of the layoffs that you're seeing being getting announced by some of these major companies. Um, but again, like if you have economic weakness globally and you're trying to sell a $1,200 product, you can't just ignore that that's going to have some impact. There, there will be some mitigating factors, like again, an operator willing to, to pay you um, to, to stay on their network or to, to switch over to your network. But that's still a pretty big headwind depending on how long this lasts. Well, AT&T, we've got delayed bills in the mix. Walter, T-Mobile talked about the same thing as well. What do you make of that? What's the connection there? I mean... First of all, I think AT&T was a couple of days. So I, to me, that was more, frankly, an excuse because they gave very bad free cash flow guidance earlier in the year. But you're right. T-Mobile tried to spin this yesterday. But the bottom line is, if you read, read, read through what the uh, CEO Mike Seaver said, their billings, um, the payments there were also getting delayed. So, yeah, I mean, you're, you're seeing and Walmart, obviously, you, you've seen evidence of, you know, a weakening consumer. Um, again, it's just if you're weak and someone's willing to pay for your phone, maybe you're more willing to do it. The challenge here is what the operators want to get out of this is if they give you that free phone, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not, they're, they're expecting something back and <laughs> yeah. they want you to upgrade to a higher end rate plan. And at some point, the consumer's not that, they, they recognize what's happening and say, look, I don't want to pay an extra 10, 20 bucks a month on my rate plan. So even if you're going to give me $800 for a phone. It doesn't resonate. And I think we saw that with, with Verizon this quarter. They were willing to pay customers you know, for these phones, 
and they still didn't get people switching to their network. It's, I don't understand why the company continues to do that, but at the moment, this is why, this is what these operators are saying, that they're willing to continue to try and subsidize and keep these customers. Walter, just awesome. As always, Walter Pysik there of Light Shed. This is a lot of fun because she comes with bulletproof academics. Berkeley was known for decades for chemistry. And part of that, of course, is chemical engineering. She's a chemi out of Berkeley. Janine Wei joins us right now with uh, Barclays, their senior U.S. oil and gas exploration and production analyst. Janine, I'm going to cut to the chase. The airlines needed one, two, three crises before they got capital discipline, before they got the religion of operations. How is oil doing in this boom at capital discipline or are they going to go off to the new Siberia and waste it all away? Oh, good morning. Thanks for having Barclays. I love it. Let's just get right at it. Um, you know, I think you're hitting at the crux of the issue. It's capital discipline, whether it's going to hold is the number one question from investors. There's a ton of skepticism on that in the yeah. market, and that's kept people away. We just checked in with all of our companies ahead of the quarter, and every single conversation, the companies were still on the right narrative, which was low growth and max free cash flow. Okay, well, let's, so, go, let's go right to the chase, Janine, just because of time. Chevron has always been the wild card. They're the arco of the modern world. Explain Chevron's capital discipline. Who is keeping them in line? Investors are keeping Chevron in line, just like how they're keeping every other company in line. Uh, energy was the worst performing sector for a number of years, and then that's because they were destroying value, uh, no returns, nothing was getting returned to shareholders that was anything meaningful, and the shareholders have spoken. And what Chevron did was they reduced their CapEx budget by $5 billion a year for the next five years, which is huge, and they've embarked on a big buyback program. You know, the buyback right now is 5 to $10 billion and we think that they're going to raise the low end of that. We're already at $10 billion for the year, and we think our investors are also at $10 billion. So the market has really instilled capital discipline on the whole sector. Janine, earlier this morning, Shell posted a record profit for the second straight quarter, and they also accelerated buybacks. Tomorrow we get the likes of Exxon and other oil majors that are reporting in the U.S. What's the political risk as they start to report these blockbuster bonanza earnings on the heels of oil prices that have become a campaign speaking point. Right. We have midterm elections coming up in November. It's a huge focus. Um, oil companies are definitely in the crosshairs because of all the profits that they're making. But let's just face it, you know, the companies are making a lot of money because oil prices are up, but they didn't make a lot of money for a lot of the other years. So what they've been doing with the cash is they've been enhancing the balance sheet and they're giving the money back. So, you know, we already saw that companies are delivering on this show me the money mentality that investors have right now. Um, we think that Exxon could potentially talk about their $30 billion buyback program. They just tripled it last quarter, so it's unlikely that they increase it this quarter. But we think that maybe there could be some shifting or front-end loading of that. We just talked about Chevron, how we think they're going to raise the bottom end of their uh, buyback guidance, and so that'll bode very well. But, you know, companies have a couple of options. They can either reinvest in growth with all that cash, and that's pretty much a no-no right now. They can pay it out via dividend and buybacks, which we think well, they're doing. 
or they can hoard the cash. But that's exactly the point. It's a no-no right now to invest in more production at a time when a lot of politicians are saying that's exactly what's required of these companies. What is the risk? How do you price out the chance of perhaps some sort of excess tax put on these companies if they don't invest in production or some other policy uh, kind of check to try to, if nothing else, be a talking point heading into the midterms? That, that's a good point. Um, we think the political risk in the headlines is very high, again, because we have midterm elections. Um, but in terms of anything actually getting through, we think the risk is low. So we've seen a windfall tax in the UK. We think that's um, highly unlikely in the US right now. Um, oil companies, they need a more consistent, friendly fiscal regime and a constant regulatory environment in order for them to really commit to plans and to increase growth. And and they don't have certainty in what taxes are going to be, if permits are going to go through, if fracking is going to be allowed, that's when they're not able to plan and then you won't see as much production growth. And policy continuity, it's a massive problem, has been for a while now. Janine, thank you. Janine Wade there of Barclays. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.